Warning, this podcast features graphic content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello again, Nightmare Society, and welcome to another episode of True Horror Stories. These stories tonight feature some kids and dangerous situations, so if that's a sensitive subject for you, I would skip this episode. Speaking of kids, we should have our brand new ones by the end of the week, so I'm just going to assume I won't have time to put out an episode the following week, so expect that. I recommend going back and listening to an older episode, or if you'd also like to support the podcast in the meantime, um, a $5 a month subscription to our Patreon gets you access to all of the bonus episodes that have been made up until today. So, blow through those if you wish, and I'll be back as soon as I can. A big thanks goes to our contributors who make this whole thing possible, SkullGirlX01, and user bad cat good cat remember nightmare society is typically a weekly podcast coming out every thursday we're available pretty much on any place you can listen to a podcast we're also available on youtube as well and as i mentioned earlier we have a patreon over at patreon.com slash nightmare society and we have an instagram as well at nightmare society radio now Get comfy and prepare yourself for another episode of The Nightmare Society. This happened on New Year's Eve of 2019, going into 2020. Looking back on it, I felt like I should have spoken up when something like this happened, but I scratched it off as paranoia. Thankfully, this is the only incident, and it's never happened again, but it still gives me chills just thinking about it. I never told it because I don't really believe I needed to, but I regret that now, and I'm sharing it here. I was an older teenager at the time and considered myself a bright girl. I was invited by another friend, who I'll call Mary, to a guy's house for a New Year's party. I was honestly a little skeptical at going because I never met the guy before. But I didn't think my parents, specifically my mom, would let me go because of that. However, once I brought it up to her, she gave little thought to it and said I could go, since I was going to be with Mary. That shocked me, and now, present day, I know why she let me go. The guy had a gender-neutral name, Riley, so she probably just assumed the guy was a girl, since I wasn't clear on the gender when asking. Anyways, I arrived to Mary's home at around 7pm and meet up with her in the backyard. The neighborhood was nice on the eyes and was pretty safe by the looks of it. I thought it would be relatively safe. I waved my mom goodbye and walked with Mary to Riley's house, which was only 20 feet away from Mary's since they were neighbors. 
Mary was a freshman at the time, and I was three grades higher as a senior. But despite Mary being short, she could easily pass for a senior because of her looks. I, on the other hand, was constantly mistaken for a freshman. I am freakishly short. A blonde hair, hazel-eyed girl. I guess it was my face that threw people off since I still have some baby fat and my bubbly, energetic personality. Since most juniors and seniors at my school came off as brain dead from being constantly tired. Well, I was wearing these platform heels with my outfit that were pretty high. So I looked taller than ever. I like to look tall. The very high heels will be relevant to the story, so remember those. The sun had just set once we had reached Riley's place. Mary's older brother, who I'll call Jason, was in my grade, and he was already at the party. I was nervous when Mary casually flung the door open and we both strolled inside. The first thing I noticed is that besides Mary and another girl was that we were the only girls there with about six to seven guys. I was a tad bit suspicious at first because I've never been to an actual New Year's party except for my best friends. But we were all good kids and never really did anything stupid. Half of these guys looked like they did pot every day by the clothes they wore and the odd smell emitting off of one of them. I formally met Riley, who came off as quiet but nice, and his dad. His dad was a tall, gruff man with long hair and no facial hair. At first, he just kind of unnerved me, the way he boldly looked into my eyes, but I let it go. Anyway, his dad was pretty chill. A little too chill. Once he got to know me, he often made comments saying that I should hook up with his son and that I'm more down to earth than most girls were. Riley was a freshman at the time, and I really wasn't interested, so I just laughed it off a bit nervously. Despite the dad getting absolutely wasted and odd, he isn't the bad guy in the story. But to make explaining this situation a little easier, you have to get to know the dad's personality. To sum it up, he was very laid-back sober, and absolutely careless when drunk. Well, Riley told everyone this, along with a couple more kids who showed up, and we decided to take advantage of that. We got hungry and were craving fast food around 10 to 11 at night. Normally, it would look pretty odd if half the kids at the party just decided to leave, but that's exactly what we did. The dad was too wasted screaming into a mic while playing GTA 5 in the bedroom nearby and the mother busy doing god knows what I don't know half of the kids stayed behind and those kids were the stoner lookalikes which I was grateful for since I didn't like the way they were looking at me so it was Mary her friend and now Jason's ex-girlfriend Hannah four nerdy but cool kids and me walking down the street to a nearby Walmart we didn't have enough money to buy all of us fast food, so we decided Walmart was the closest and the best thing to try since it was still open. This was when I noticed we were being watched. I almost didn't see because the guy was good at hiding somehow, but just out of the corner of my eye, I noticed him standing behind a trash can on the other side of the street, staring in our direction. I could have written this off as a random man enjoying the night and staring at our odd behavior, 
but the way he seemed to try and hide behind the trash can was very off-putting. He was pretty tall, medium build, and cladded in all black. His hoodie was pulled up, obscuring his face in shadows, but I could tell he was watching us. Other than that, I couldn't tell you anything else, even though I had a couple of alarm bells going off in my head. I did my best to distract my friends as I didn't want to cause unnecessary problems if this guy really was just a local pedestrian. So I just kept myself distracted too as we exit the front of the country crossings and onto an avenue which led to the main avenue about 25 feet away. As we crossed the busy crosswalk to head towards the closing in Walmart, I could faintly hear brisk steps behind us. I almost missed it considering how loud my friends were, but my ears picked it up. I turned my head slightly over my shoulder and used the corner of my eye to peek again. It was the same man, keeping pace at about 40 feet behind us with his head low and obscured. I felt my heart sink and was wondering if all of this was just a coincidence and even if it was the same guy I saw. My heels were starting to take a toll on me from the walking so I used it as an excuse to hurry to the Walmart and get back to Riley's place as soon as possible. My friends, who shook their heads at unprepared me, reluctantly agreed and we sped up our pace. I stayed a little far behind, listening to the strange man's footsteps grow softer and softer until they disappeared. But I was too scared to look back until we reached the Walmart parking lot. I figured if this guy was a creeper, he wouldn't try anything in a lit public area. I would worry about another plan if I saw him on the way back. My friends were pretty self-absorbed with their goal to buy energy drinks and absolutely demolished their systems with them to really notice their surroundings. So I watched out for the guy for them, since I was 90% sure they were not paying attention. As two of them argued which monster tasted better, and the rest crowded together watching the argument and amusement, I stayed near the back of the group, looking around the tiny Walmart. It wasn't too crowded at this time of night, which I say just reached 11pm, since most people were busy celebrating the night away. I didn't see any sign of the creeper, nor did I feel like I was being watched, so I thought we had successfully eluded him. Of course, I had to be wrong. My stomach did churning flips of fear as the feeling of being watched hit me with sudden force. It was so strong. I thought I was going to be sick right then and there. Not exactly caring if my friends saw my odd behavior. I turned my body to the right until I saw him. The guy was standing next to some jugs of water about ten aisles down. A few people gave him the odd glance at the unmoving man as they passed by. But he didn't care. He was staring straight at us with this sick grin I could barely see in the light of the store. He had his attention on Mary the most, licking his lips as he eyed her up and down. This sick asshole was preying on my own friend. Oh hell no. I could tell he was probably on the darker side of skin. I think maybe Hispanic or Native American. His hair was short and black and he looked to be in his late 20s to early 30s. In my area and state, it's not common to see many darker people, so I remember that significant detail. I remember turning away to look at Mary to see if she noticed. 
She was too busy showing Instagram posts to Hannah to really see what was going on. How did she not get the feeling of being watched? Jason must have noticed my odd behavior because he put a hand on my shoulder and asked me if I was okay. Now Jason is a normal jokester who was never serious really, so his tone and facial expression caught all of my friends' attention. I briefly glanced over at the guy who had his back turned and pretended to scan the water jugs behind him. That guy was definitely on my radar now. I don't know why I did this, but I stupidly told my friends everything was okay and that I was just in pain from my heels, which was true, but not the source of my worried look. They seemed to believe me and made some jokes about them and then let me off the hook for the night. I still don't know why I didn't tell them. Maybe I thought they wouldn't believe me or take it seriously. They were pretty careless, and I don't say this to be mean. Everyone, including me, lives in a nice, safe neighborhood, though most of them used to have bad backgrounds. That was just the norm these days, and they just wanted to have fun. Reckless teenagers are the perfect words to describe them. Despite being raised in a very safe place myself, my mom has and to this day still teaches me about being aware of my surroundings and some basic self-defense moves. My mom is an average height woman, but very built, and being in the military since she was 23 has taught her a lot about the importance of protecting yourself, a lesson she has passed on to me and my four siblings since day one. She's about 40 now, still works in the military, and is my inspiration to join as well when I'm old enough. To anyone who has family out there in the service or is in the service, I thank you. Anyways, I didn't buy anything because I wasn't hungry anymore, nor thirsty. I just kept one eye on the creeper until he disappeared from my view behind the cleaning aisle. My friends called me, telling me to hurry up as we left the Walmart. On the way back, it only took me three minutes to hear those soft clicks of footsteps again, but by this time I already had a plan. I didn't want to freak out my friends at all, so I wanted to get them out of the situation as quickly as possible, preferring them to be unaware of the possible danger we were in. I just needed the right moment, and it had to be soon, because once we made the right onto the dark avenue, anything could happen. As we approached the corner, I began to panic. I just needed something to go off, anything to use as a distraction. The corner was about five feet away, and I thought I would have to come up with a new plan but that's when the sirens could be heard. They weren't heading in our direction, just passing through, but I thanked my lucky stars that they did. So in my best playful voice, I yelled, Oh shit, Jason, you got the police on us. Make a run for it. No, we didn't do anything illegal. We just thought this was funny, and this has been a running joke ever since I met the guy. Well, it worked perfectly because Jason started laughing and cursing, breaking off into a run towards Riley's house. Everyone, including me, followed his lead, mad dashing to Riley's house. To pick up the pace, I yelled, Last one there has to kiss Michael the stoner tonight. Despite my feet practically going numb with the heels, we all somehow pick up speed, with no one wanting to kiss a stoner tonight. I looked back to see the man had stopped on the sidewalk, looking up and staring at me with what I was guessing a devious glare. 
I watched until I almost tripped and had to look ahead once again. Serves him right. We made it back in record speeds, no one noticing where we had gone or that we had even left. I'm glad to say he didn't follow us, nor did I see him the rest of the night, which I'm thankful for. I haven't seen him since either on my drives to visit Mary and Jason from time to time, and I hope I never see him again. If you think someone is following you, don't be afraid to speak up or take precautions. I believe I just got lucky in this case, but so many more bad things could have happened if I wasn't paying attention. So, as my mom preaches, stay aware of your surroundings. It will help you out in the long run. Also, alert your parents or guardian if you go out and don't be foolish like I was. Hi everyone, it's Elise from True Crime Cat Lawyer. That's right, I've combined my three favorite things into a podcast. Cats, true crime, and lawyering. Every other Thursday, my co-host Winston and I bring you a new case from the Pacific Northwest. Winston is my sassy sidekick with a mustache who can often be found donning a bow tie. In other words, she's my cat. Winston and I are passionate about true crime and we love doing this podcast. As of this recording, we've released over 30 regular episodes and a few bonus episodes. Our episodes are focused on the victims and sharing their stories, something we take a lot of pride in. We're working hard to produce true crime content in an ethical way. Plus, every quarter, Winston and I donate our ad proceeds and Patreon proceeds to a true crime or animal-related nonprofit organization. If you're from the Pacific Northwest or you just enjoyed true crime, Winston and I would love for you to check out our show. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Good Pods. We hope you'll join us for some true crime in the Pacific Northwest. Over the years as a woman who has declined every proposal of marriage or conventional living arrangement, largely moving through life as a single person. I've gathered more tales of dangerous chance encounters than I can even rattle off in a day. Stalkings, a murderer that has never been apprehended, death threats, actual physical assaults. And I'm not especially defiant of common sense or rules to live by, i.e. I don't walk alone after dark. I never open the door to strangers. I'm not chatty or inclined to give people I meet my phone number, even if they seem stable. Really, I'm just socially lazy. But my earliest memory of contact with a predator predates the invention of the internet. When I was just a child, living with my also very single mother. We had just moved into a large white American colonial style home across the street from a daycare center. It was the nicest home we had lived in thus far which says a lot because my mother was forever struggling to keep me clothed and fed. While my father pursued his dreams of being an artist and could afford to pay little in child support, but he did pay, without fail every month, and ultimately became a successful painter and left me an impressive legacy. I'm very proud to be his daughter. I was excited because I had the entire downstairs level to serve as my own personal play space. 
away from my chronically high-strung mother, and she is relieved to be directly across the street from reliable childcare. Perhaps the low rent had something to do with the fact that our neighbors on the right were Moonies, essentially members of a worldwide cult referred to as the Unification Movement. A group of them lived in an upscale home a stone's throw away with shuttered windows that never opened, and we almost never laid eyes on them. Never during the daytime. Never. Ever. To our left was Ron. Ron was a middle-aged man, probably in his 40s, a little more than a decade older than my mother. I was seven at the time, and pretty observant and stoic for a child, so it didn't escape my notice that Ron was eccentric, peculiar, always wound up and kind of dopey at the same time. He had wild dark hair that stuck up and kind of fanned out on the sides, but was thinning on the top where he insisted on conspicuously combing in such a manner as to hide his visible scalp. He wore wire-rimmed glasses that magnified his eyes and somehow lent him an air of goofy harmlessness, like the fourth missing stooge. When we first met Ron, who appeared in our front yard one afternoon after she collected me from daycare, my mother's weirdo meter went off. He seemed over-eager to be living next to a financially strapped single mother and her strange daughter. My mother was beautiful by any standards. However, tall, willowy, with long dark blonde hair that ended at her waist and perpetually the perfect shade of tan, thanks to her very Native American grandparents that raised her for most of her formative years. Really a striking and unusually beautiful woman but troubled. She was troubled for a lot of cultural reasons, which left her socially awkward and gun-shy, and also sympathetic to other socially challenged individuals. So she gave Ron the benefit of the doubt. I thought, and she would later say that she thought as well, that Ron just developed a very big crush fast and understandably. It started with a locket. A locket which had a picture of me inside of it, that was the first gift he surprised her with, calling up to the house standing outside our fence. It looked like an antique to us, which Ron confirmed he came across at work, as he was an antiques dealer. My mother was deeply disturbed by the photo of me, which was obviously taken unbeknownst to anyone while I was playing in the yard. And back then, everything was done with 35mm film. No one had cell phones or home printers, even disposable cameras. We had a Polaroid and 35mm, and this 35mm meaning there were like other photos of me which had been developed sitting in his house. My mother tried to refuse the gift, also explaining that she was not by any means okay with anyone taking photos of her daughter without her consent. But then Ron appeared to be inconsolably apologetic, so she accepted, reluctantly thanked him, and we both returned inside. The next gift was a large stereo system. Stereo systems were not cheap in those days, and this was one of the more expensive models. Ron, who always looked especially sweaty and sickly in the Texas heat, said he had received it from a pawn shop owner he was friends with, but had a home stereo as well as a system at the antique shop, so he couldn't benefit from it. Didn't want to go to the trouble of selling it, 
and wouldn't want it to go to waste when he could give it to us, since he was certain we did not have a system of our own. He was right. We had a little boom box. Well, I had one. My mother had books and her writing, and eschewed other forms of entertainment as brain rotting. My mother refused the extravagant gift, but Ron begged her to take it for my sake, and finally she relented, incredibly uncomfortable. She said at least she could listen to Tina Turner, of whom she was quite the fan. However, she took Ron's suggestion and set the system up in my den, downstairs. The third gift was a camera, an obviously expensive professional camera, which he again claimed he had received from a friend of his, who was also in some sort of retail business. These items did not look used in any way, and my mother really wanted the attention to stop at this point. She flatly refused the gift and drew her line in the sand. No more gifts. None. Period. She began to dread coming home from work, and I was no longer allowed to play in the yard. Despite the absence of gifts, Ron would still appear at the fence, or catch my attention from the bottom window, and I would instinctively go get my mother, who would then come down and firmly but politely tell him it was not a good time for visiting or neighborly chit-chat. My mother and father had just worked out a new visitation schedule, and I was to begin spending Saturday nights at his house. Up to that point, I spent Friday nights there, but it was all six of one, half dozen of the other as far as she was concerned. So, Saturday it was. That first Saturday went smoothly until the following Sunday morning, when my father returned me to my mother's house, and we learned someone had broken into the home, taken nothing, and gone nowhere except the downstairs. My mother had heard them come in, and quietly locked the door at the top of the stairs, which was a weird feature we were suddenly grateful for, and proceeded to hide from the intruder until he left some minutes later. I had just fortunately been away at the time, because it was quite typical of me to be up late on Saturday night, listening to the stereo, since there was no school or work the next day for either of us. The police told her she needed a dog of any size, and a gun. She took off work the next day and I stayed another night with my father while she went shopping for a shotgun. At some point while talking to my father about the incident, the matter of neighbors came up and Ron entered the conversation. When my father learned about all the attention Ron had fixed on my mother, he was naturally alarmed, especially for me, whom he worried might get caught in the crosshairs. My dad was kind of a vaguely emotionally unavailable man, but not an absentee father by any means, and I knew beneath his somewhat distant, placid surface, he loved me greatly. My mother would later tell me about his duality, unable to pass up a taking in a stray dog or cat, but he would come home from the bars covered in other people's blood. He had been a boxer for many years in the service, and he was unafraid of even people he probably should have avoided. Something of a wild card. You never knew what he would do when push came to shove. Some time went by. Not a great deal, a week or two. And I began to notice Ron walking by my school more often when we were at lunch on recess. He'd stop and say hi, which no one seemed to notice. I didn't mention it to my parents because I really didn't understand the true concept of child predators at that age, 
and because Ron never engaged me beyond saying hello or waving as he walked along the fence. It never occurred to me that anything untoward was happening. Finally, one day he stopped at the fence and said, I'm going to go get some ice cream. It's so hot out. Aren't you hot? It was Houston freaking Texas. Even as a child born and raised, I remember sweating in my shoes and speculating about the blistering temperature with friends on the playground some days. Is it 120 degrees? 200 degrees? We didn't know, but we thought it was close and had overheard news reports of elderly people expiring from heat stroke. My father always spoke of melting into a puddle on the sidewalk, and it conjured images of grandmothers liquefying like candles into unidentifiable pools of wax on the concrete. So, heck yes, I was freaking hot. I nodded. I really wish I could take you to get some ice cream with me. He said, sticking his fingers through the high chain link fence. Hey, you want to go get some ice cream with me? That was a defining moment in my child's brain, when it became something other. Something other than simply the mind of a child. I understood then that Ron was not just Crazy Ron as my parents had called him. He was sinister. His intentions were dark. Darker than I could fathom. But I seemed to snap to that awareness too. Up to that point, we had been warned what adults who sought to hurt children would say to lure us away from safety. It was all over television commercials, billboards, pamphlets, police, and guest speakers visiting our school. They would recite the script of lines meant to tempt us with promises of pixie sticks and bubblegum. But they never told us what happened after that. What they would actually do after dropping the bait. And I didn't need to know. An uneasy feeling crept over me and I backed away from the fence saying I needed to go. Recess was almost over. About an hour later, I was called into the principal's office. I was terrified and had never been called down to the office before. Still a pretty well-behaved kid at this stage in my life. Once I walked in, I saw both my parents and my stomach dropped. My mother was visibly shaken and my father was pacing. I had only seen my father angry one time that I could recall, yet I knew in my gut that he was seething with anger in that moment. I knew I was really screwed if my mother and my father had to leave their respective jobs to come deal with something I had done. For the life of me, I couldn't figure out what it had been, though. I quickly learned that Ron had gone into the office, stating that he was my father. He was picking me up, and he would be promptly moving to another state with me so I wouldn't be returning. Luckily, my father was a very involved parent, and he was also friends with the artist boyfriend of my teacher at the time. We often ran into them at the art supply store, and Miss Curry knew extremely well what my father looked like. When she received word that my father was there to whisk me away for good, she went straight to the office to learn more. The man standing before her clearly was not my father, and the staff's internal alarms were rung. The police had already taken Ron, and I'm not totally sure what happened next, but I do know that at some point in the days that followed, Ron returned home briefly, long enough for my father to find him. Unfortunately, my father is no longer living, and he can't fill in the blanks at this part of the story, but I do remember he came straight to the house looking flustered, holding one hand in another and wincing. 
He did tell us that Ron wouldn't be living next door any longer, and if we ever saw a trace of him again, that my father would kill him with his bare hands. He then took me to his house for several days, and when I returned home, Ron was gone and police continued to move in and out of his house for the rest of the week. There were no stalking laws at that time in Texas, and even kidnapping was a fairly new concept to law enforcement with limited protocols in place. It was the 80s, but what I have been able to piece together is that eventually the police were able to tie Ron to the break-in at my mother's house where he had likely gone clumsily planning to abduct me, and whatever they found in his house was enough to keep him behind bars. We learned that Ron had been living with his mother, Norman Bates style, his entire life, until she died not long before, leaving him the house next to us and the antique shop. He was not a well-balanced, functional adult, and was likely psychosexually stunted for reasons I can never really know. The part that really makes me uneasy here is Ron's plan to move with me in tow. I couldn't imagine he was actually planning to abandon the home he owned. I don't know if he was simply being compulsive, thinking he would work out the kinks after he got me in his clutches, or if he already had some terrible plan to dispose of me and the evidence before I was officially declared missing. My mother purchased a German Shepherd violating the terms of her lease and we had to move to a garage apartment across town so we never saw Ron again hopefully no one did outside of fellow prisoners but I suspect he was eventually released back out into society again at some point but who knows I doubt he's even alive in 2020 I suppose the most frightening aspect of the whole ordeal is not that he existed in the first place but that my mother was never the target, only an obstacle. And all the flattery and attempts to infiltrate her life were simply the acts of a man trying to get around her to her child. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Don't forget, there probably won't be an episode next week. I'll try my hardest to get one out, but... I don't think it's going to happen. Feel free to go back through and re-listen to some older episodes. We've got like 150 episodes. And pretty much all of them are on YouTube. I know there's only 100 available in uh, the podcast apps because I'm only able to um, have the 100 most recent ones available. Um, Also, there's Patreon. Uh, We have all the previous episodes available on there as well. I continue to try and update them. Um, as some get uh, traded out on the app. And there's also compilations on uh, Patreon as well to listen through the podcast app. I also have the compilations available on YouTube as well, so you can check it out there too. Keep up to date with what's going on with us over on our Instagram at Nightmare Society Radio. And until next time. Ha, 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 ha.